Hello and welcome back to another Linux Gaming Co-op News Punch episode. It's Liam here again and I'm joined by my fellow co-host and Linux enthusiast Samzai. How is it going, man? Oh, it's going quite, quite fantastically. I had a sauna not that long ago. I'm relaxed. I'm ready to go and ready to rant. Ready to rant. Yeah, because that is what we do here. This might be the Linux Gaming Co-op News Punch, but there's not a huge amount of gaming that we talk about. We talk about everything. Linux, open source, sometimes gaming, and a lot of rants about stuff. Yes. Because a lot has happened recently, including the DMCA getting abused once again. Yeah, that seems to be a very common thing. Because the RIAA, so this is the American Recording Industry, they took down YouTube DL. It's a, a FOSS free and open source tool for downloading videos. And it's it may be called YouTube DL, but it's used across loads of places. This is a, a free and open source tool that doesn't provide any copyrighted content itself. It is simply a tool. Anybody can download it and do things with it. It's not much different than a web browser when you go back to the basics. Yeah, I mean, it, basically what it allows you to do is you can point it at a website that has some video content on it, and what it will do is it will simply pull that content and and kind of uh, restructure it into a more kind of easily watchable video format on your personal computer. So what you're saying is it is a very simplified version of OBS Studio. Yeah, I mean, that that would kind of be... A sort of a sort of the the equivalent because I could fire up OBS Studio and record my screen with a video on it, and then I've got a copy of whatever I'm watching. Well, I mean, technically yes, uh, but it, it it is entirely possible that the RIAA might say that you are uh, uh, you you are kind of circumventing copyright protection systems, and uh, I believe that there is a big push to kind of you know, put some extra DRM bits into videos and such things to make that a little bit harder to do. But technically what you could be doing is you could be like taking OBS, pointing it at YouTube, and you could basically kind of do the same thing as YouTube DL, except I think it's a little bit slower because you'd have to play back the video file instead of just kind of ripping it off the site. Right, yeah. But the point is, though, it's it's an open source tool, just like OBS Studio. It can download or record, basically, videos. And the point is that YouTube DL itself got the DMCA takedown on GitHub, so their GitHub repository got removed, it got nuked. Yeah, it did. And um, so far it hasn't really gone, like, uh, it hasn't been the most popular like decision that RIA has made. Um, I think the immediate aftermath of that was basically... A bunch of forks were set up of the project, and so there are like, like basically the Streisand effect is kicking in hard. So there are now more repositories hosting YouTube DL, and there's probably more talk about YouTube DL right now than it was, than there was before. Someone even uploaded technically through a kind of like a, 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 a sort of a weird thing how GitHub like works they even uploaded a copy of the youtube dl source code directly into the github dmca repo- repository <laughs> what 
Yeah, they managed to do that. I mean, it's it's technically not there, but if you fork a repository and then you make changes to your own fork, you can access that fork through a, like a special tag. So they could create a, a, basically a URL that looked like it belonged to the DMCA repository itself. And oh, uh, they had to, they had to, they had to write in the in the description of that repository that you cannot upload copyrighted content into this repository, or we will ban you. That is amazing. It just goes to show how these platforms. It's just oh, it's crazy. How can you try and remove something like that that is free and open source? It's already spread across the internet. They've now made more like you said many more people have looked at it i've seen people and media outlets talk about youtube dl that have probably didn't even know existed yeah exactly it it is completely stupid and i imagine this is basically them just like foot gunning themselves really hard because there was no reason for them to like look into it at all and i i personally found the justifications why they did that like super weak too I think the, the, the RIA justifications for taking down the repository were basically that they had examples, like kind of how you use the program examples in the repository that kind of indicated like they would be downloading, like they were examples for downloading some like, uh, you know, popular songs off of YouTube or something. And, right. uh, there was also some code in YouTube DL that so, like they, they claim that it's copyright protection circumvention. But what it really is, like, there is this, like, really flimsy thing that YouTube does to kind of have, like, token defense against, um, like, um, just straight up ripping the video files. And YouTube DL kind of gets around that. And uh, they claim that according to a single, like, I think a single ruling somewhere in Germany that this counts as copyright protection circumvention. That is just so, mad. Yeah, that's that's completely mad. I don't think there's any like actual like internationally valid like precedents for this. Uh, but basically, it was just they had some examples that encouraged quote unquote uh, the the um, kind of copyright violations, and that there was a little bit of code in there that technically did something that they sort of kind of feel like was copyright protection circumvention. It's such an overreach, isn't it? It's ridiculous going after the tool that has legitimate uses rather than combating the actual problem. Yeah, I mean, this is, this has nothing to do with piracy or copyright-like uh, violations. I mean, they, they'd be better, like, they would be better serving the record industry if they were actually, like, shutting down, uh, like, proper piracy sites. Um, because this does, like, nothing except harm people that were generally just using the tool for their own benefit and to the like no to no detriment of like actual you know artists not I mean, to mention there's the there's the argument too that they shouldn't even be trying to like co- go for the pirates because it's not like the pirates are actually like going to be you know actual customers like it would be highly unlikely so maybe the record industry would be better served if they you know tried to make like music distribution a little bit more i don't know accessible to people yeah. i don't know yeah, I agree. It's all it stuff like this is always a case of going after the tool instead of the reason why people are using it and making things better for consumers. It's never about making things better, is it? It's about them desperately trying to protect often archaic ways of earning money. And it's yeah, it's just an abuse. 
of copyright as far as I'm concerned. I think it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I I I I fully agree with that. I don't think there it, it I actually like the cynic in me feels like it they don't want to actually solve the problem. They want to just perpetuate the problem so that they can, you know, provide the solution to the problem ad nauseum. You know, this... if they solved the problem of piracy, then RIAA would need wouldn't need to exist, basically. You could even stretch that to all the DRM measures that are put into games that are generally broken sometimes before release, sometimes a day after, on the day, within a week, just to squeeze those tiny little bits that in the end only cause issues for users. This is just what the RIAA are doing, isn't it? Kinda, yeah. It's it's just ridiculous. But they've also been doing the same to Twitch. Twitch has had this recently this huge big ban wave. It's been going through the media right now because quite a few big streamers have ended up getting these DMCA copyright strikes. A few of them have then been stopped from streaming for 24 hours or longer or had videos just removed. And Twitch were like really worried about it, telling people to basically delete your on-demand videos if you think they might have music in it. It's absolutely insane. Like there's people out there who make their own music on stream, their music, and they've been getting DMCAs. And it's like they're making their own music or people that have sung a song so well that it sounds like the actual song and then they've got a DMCA strike. And this all sounds ridiculous, but it's true. It's all happening. It's such an overreach. It's insane. Yeah, and I mean, this is obviously like, this is only relatively new to Twitch, but like, if you've been watching things on the YouTube side of things, like, this has been basically like the ordinary day to day on YouTube for ages. Like, some people have even like put in like birds singing into the content ID system and then, you know, getting that matched across like on, on a whole bunch of other videos that have just literally birds. And they've been able to collect ad money from that. So, I mean, I guess at this point, the, the automated garbage system that is content ID has basically just made its way to Twitch. And I, now it allows for these waves of just mass DMCA claims and things like that. Yes. And I think Twitch was like really bad at communicating this too. Like yeah. they were really ambiguous as to like what the violations were. So basically they were just kind of encouraging people to just blanket delete everything just yeah. in case. Yeah, there, I saw some, like, some of the biggest Twitch streamers talking about it, and they were saying that Twitch's reply was basically delete your life's work. And it's like, wow. Uh, there was, um, Sin was telling me a story about this, actually, that there's people that play Grand Theft Auto V on Twitch, uh, in roleplay. And the, it's really, really popular. I, I'm not a big fan of it, but this whole DMCA copyright stuff, hit them because of the police siren sounds that go off quite a lot in a game like GTA because (laughs) there's a particular song out there, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but in part of the song it has police sirens in it. Yeah, basically exactly the same as the birds example, but you know, slightly different. But these streamers then got around it by recording themselves going and then making the cars (laughs) do that sound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, yeah. Our, you know, copyright was never meant to be enforced the, through these kinds of like AI, you know, computerized automatic systems and like no. it shows. 
the the it's basically just you know collateral damage as far as the eye can see. Yeah, it's fair use is there for a reason, and it should be a much bigger thing in copyright law. But it's just not because it's all done by bot. Mm, exactly, and I mean you you will you will have a hard time trying to teach an AI about fair use. Like that's it's not going to succeed. So on the subject of live streaming, you told me about a project earlier called Owncast. Yeah, this is something that kind of uh, I have I stumbled upon while I was browsing my Mastodon. Um, it's basically like a project that. Um, you know, it's kind of aimed at people who get, you know, sick of Twitch's nonsense, YouTube's nonsense. And it's basically like a, a simple to configure and like quick to set up, uh, software that you can set up on your own server to provide like, um, a, a kind of a Twitch alternative. So basically all it does is it will allow you to point your OBS at it. You can then stream to it and it will provide a web page that has a, a, a video, uh, video feed and it has like a little chat. So it's basically like um like imagine uh Twitch but it only has one channel. So is this open source? I believe that it is open source. Um I didn't look into it too much but I yeah I I think it says like uh yeah it has like the building stuff so it seems like that stuff is on GitHub as well. Yeah, I just found yeah. it. Okay. So it's github.com/owncast. It's under the MIT license. So this basically allows anyone to put up their very own streaming service. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's the the, the slight problem, which uh, which which will be a problem for many people, which is that it obviously needs you to own some like hardware to run it on. So you would need to get like some kind of a, a, a private server from uh, DigitalOcean or or something like that to okay. um, to run it on. But um, saying that, that's not actually that big an issue anymore. Only recently, I believe it's DigitalOcean, that they rolled out this service where you can just basically point their new service to a GitHub repository, and then it will basically set up a server with that installed and ready to go, and it will keep it up to date. Uh, I think there's some stuff for that kind of stuff, yes, but obviously you still need to like pay for it, and there might be some management that you need to do, and you need to configure it, and uh, yeah. things like that. So it's it's not like... It's not something that you can have for free, basically. You have to put in a little bit of money and time and resources to actually get it up and running. But I have had, like, I, I one of my friends quickly tested this on their, like, uh, VPS, and they said that they managed to, like, get it up and running in, like, minutes. Wow. And that's, like, uh, and he even says that he's not, like, the, like a super technically um, uh, competent person, necessarily. So, uh-huh. um, um yeah, it's 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 definitely seems to be like a relatively simple tool to set up. That's kind of awesome. So it's a free, open source, self-hosted live video and web chat server that you can host yourself. That's yeah. awesome. Nice. I love stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, how about a little bit of gaming chat for a minute? We were yes. asked by readers and listeners to talk a little bit about Proton, the compatibility layer for Steam Play, which is built upon the Wine project. So we're just going to give it a few quick thoughts, quick fire thoughts about how we feel about it, what it's doing, why it's here, and so on. 
Yeah, I, I imagine the people who asked for this really kind of wanted to uh, go for some blood sports because um, uh, I imagine the, the the readers and the listeners might have an idea what my stance on this is. What is your stance on compatibility layers then, like Proton? Well, I'm a bit of an anti-particle when it comes to these kinds of things. Um, so I'm, I, I, I have not run any, any game or any software in Proton whatsoever. Not ever. And, uh, I'm, I have a, like a relatively anti-Proton stance, but it is a little bit more nuanced than that. Some people, when I've talked to them about Proton, they, they seem to take this like, Okay, I, I obviously what I mean is I advocate for nobody should ever run anything in Proton and Proton is like every, in every single way bad and all of that stuff. Um, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But my personal view is that um, you should avoid buying games so that you play them on Proton as much as possible. Right. And why is that? So, uh, my, my view is that it's important for us as like if if we value linux as a as a gaming platform or as a like a software platform in general yeah i believe it's important for us to basically establish a healthy and sustainable ecosystem for software development and what i feel is that these proton and these kind of like compatibility systems they basically tie us to the windows software ecosystem and I feel like that might come at the detriment of the native ecosystem because if if you know people are content with just playing games that and you know running software that comes from Windows world there is less of an incentive for basically everybody to make stuff that runs on Linux natively that means that we have less development resources going towards stuff that allows us to build things for Linux um I think it's worth noting that many of the things that are like central to the uh, uh, Linux gaming ecosystem these days, things like SDL uh, and various other things such as that uh, have come from porting efforts. Like so, <laughs> so, so like th- these are these are things that you know get developed because there is a need for these tools. But if there's no need for these tools, then they don't get developed. Yeah. And also, I feel like at best, if we are if we are to rely on Proton as the way to like kind of de facto way to play games on Linux, we're never gonna exceed the 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 kind of bar that Windows sets for us, and we're entirely kind of reliant on whatever the developers want to do on Windows side. So we have basically no say in anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's that's all a fair point. It mm. brings me on to something that. Um, Dave Ali spoke about recently, actually, because there was an article on Pharonix talking about the Intel graphics drivers. And Intel are basically talking up how they're sharing more and more code with their graphics drivers between Windows and Linux. And their comparison was like it was originally 10% and now it's it's up to like 60% and that's shared between them and on face value it sounds like a good idea but then mm-hmm. he lists a bunch of reasons on why it's not because if you're doing this one thing you're sticking to that one thing and there's going to be essentially less innovation when you're trying to shoehorn something as big as a graphics driver or you know, thousands of games to run on different systems. 
and he gave an example of uh, as I recall, like one of the big things was like uh, duplication in the drivers. Um, obviously, what they want to do to keep the drivers maintainable, like the the Linux kernel drivers and the Mesa user space drivers, is what they want to do. Is they want to use as as few parts and make sure that as many drivers use common parts as possible, because that way you know you have less code to deal with, and less code is more maintainable. Um, and, uh, I think one of the big things that they, that, uh, early was kind of like, um, um, worried about was that, um, if these drivers just become kind of like, um, a, a little bit of glue code that, that, let, that ties it to the platform and then just like a, a kind of a monolith on top of that, it's very difficult for developers to actually like manage be like outside of the the vendor itself. Obviously, the when the vendor probably has some ways of you know maintaining its own drivers, but you know there is uh, a level of community uh, kind of participation that is required in order for this to be maintainable, kind of in the future. Yeah. Well, the the point that interested me the most when comparing it with something a compatibility layer like Proton is how that when he was comparing how. AMD were doing their drivers. So they have AMD VLK as their Vulkan driver, but it's all developed sort of behind the scenes, even though it is then put up as open source. He was comparing mm-hmm. it to the RADV project in Mesa, where it allowed a big company like Valve to come along and contribute the ACO backend compiler and provide much better results than you got originally with LLVM. Yeah. And this is the point. If you try and shoehorn everything from one platform into another, there can end up being less innovation. And this is part of the point about creating a a healthy platform, which is, for me personally, why I focus my personal and professional effort on those who directly support Linux. Because, Mm -hmm. again, it's it's important for the long-term health of the platform overall. And a lot of people use Proton for, like, you know, the latest AAA game. And I think there's enough places talking about those already. Mm. The last thing, though, that I want to see is, in terms of Proton and compatibility layers, is to see actual game developers, game engines, middleware, and so on, end up not bothering with Linux at all because of a compatibility layer. Yeah, I mean, that means that there is basically, uh, that, that would basically mean that developing games on Linux would be harder because there aren't, like, these, these standard tools wouldn't be, like, available for us anymore if, if Linux only becomes a platform that is sort of indirectly sorta kinda supported by a, like, a compatibility layer. That means that you don't need those tools to be running on Linux either. Um, which means that we don't get middleware, we don't get the engines, we don't get the editors, we don't get any of this stuff. And that means that we are set back in some ways, uh, behind, you know, developing on Windows. And we don't want that. Uh, obviously we would prefer that stuff was developed on Linux for Linux, because that's how you get the best end result. Yeah, clearly. But thankfully though, just to put a positive point there, I don't think we're, even remotely close to anything like that happening, honestly. Only recently, the Unity Technologies, who make the Unity game engine, they made a very open and clear commitment 
to their Linux editor, the Linux version of the editor, and mm. they will be pushing it into official status. And they've clearly put quite a lot of effort into this, and it has, has come along quite nicely from a few developers that I've spoken to who've been using it. So that's actually really yeah. great. And we're also in a, in a relatively lucky position at the moment that we have Godot Engine, which provides a, like a relatively competent alternative to Unity, at least for like the kind of like more indie focused stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as long as these kind of open source projects, uh, survive and thrive, that kind of is like the, the guarantee that our platform will also survive and thrive. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. As, there seems to have been in the last maybe two years, there seems to be this renewed focus from a lot of different people and a lot of different industries on open source that I've seen. Yeah. But when it comes to compatibility layers, whether it's Python, Wine, or anything else, right now, Linux on the desktop is a small market. Being completely realistic there, Proton and other tools like it in many ways are necessary tools to prevent people losing access to hundreds, perhaps thousands. I mean, in my Steam library, I've got over 2000 games. Now, imagine if somebody is switching from Windows to Linux and let's say a thousand of them are not available on Linux. They would then lose access. And that's why I think something like Proton can be important is the preservation aspect of it. I think it is great for that. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And I have also advocated that you should use, uh, you know, Wine and, and, and Proton to kind of assist with the transition over to Linux side of things. And I have, I, I see no harm in you playing your old games through Proton. That's like, uh, no, like the, as far as my, my kind of view of this, this whole thing is concerned, there is no harm that you can do by doing that. Yeah. Um, my, my main focus is mainly on like supporting the developers that actually do put the time in to support us properly. Yeah. I mean, there is the arg, some people argue that you can't really vote with your wallet and no, no, uh, no ethical consumption under capitalism and whatnot. But I feel like it's still important to do and it's better than like not doing it. Um, I also like there is this like kind of wider argument that I would like to make, which is that I mean I don't know what your view is like of the the, the Linux utopia. Like if, if if you could like kind of come up with a utopia world where everything is you know the like what is basically your kind of dream how Linux as a platform or you know computing in general would look like in the future? Because for me, my utopia is that we would all be running basically fully open source software. I don't see any reason to preserve um you know proprietary software. Wait, uh, is this where you have a go at me again for having an NVIDIA GPU? Well, I, I, I would like to do that, but you, you kind of spoiled <laughs> it. Uh, but, but, but my main point here is like my utopia for computing in general is that we would be using like full open source software. And my, my belief is that if we can encourage developers to interact with a platform that is more open source, they might, you know, kind of pick up influences there and kind of see like, Hey, this, this open source thing looks pretty cool. Maybe I'm going to do something that is also open source. And then they maybe contribute to some open source project that helps them ship their game. 
or maybe they release some of their own tooling as open source and eventually it might even you know transfer over to hey we're going to op- open source our game engine uh, have fun uh, or something like that so that's kind of also my like kind of hope uh and that's also one of the reasons why I prefer to like support developers that develop like native stuff because my ultimate hope is that these developers would eventually, you know, kind of transition to a more open source friendly kind of um, uh, business model. Well, that is the dream, isn't it? Because if something is out there and it's open source, it can then be ported and reported to other platforms, to modern platforms 20, 30 years in the future. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to compatibility layers, though, my real hope is that they just help Linux grow help people move from Windows to Linux for their desktops or their laptops and enable them to stick with it. So then we can get more users and then be a bigger target or more direct supported games. I think that's the ultimate goal there for me. Mm. And that's really how I feel about it. I have quite a quite an open view about it that I don't really use compatibility layers myself. But for everyone else just Whatever makes you happy, whatever helps. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a more of a, a, a fanatic idealist in that regard, I suppose. <laughs> the interesting thing there, though, is that things like Proton have caused quite a lot of YouTuber focus on Linux as well when it comes to mm. Linux gaming. And don't hate me for this, Chris, but Chris Titus, I think that's how you say it, Titus, Titus? He mentioned uh, in a recent video, he did one of those, I am no longer using Linux for gaming, and he reeled off all these reasons. And all I could think of is like, you were one of these people who hyped it all up, then realized it's not as good as Windows to basically try and emulate the games of it, and then leave Mm. it and make a video and make things sound worse. It's just things like that bug me quite a lot. Yeah, it's setting the expectations pretty high. Uh, there was this all, a lot of this buzz at, and, and hype at one point where like, yeah, we can totally replace the Windows PC with a Linux PC that runs all of the games through, through, um, Proton and everything is going to be perfect. But, you know, eventually, uh, you know, anti-cheat software and things like that started kind of making that off kind of a mess. So, um, yeah, I suppose it's like, Maybe there's a little bit of like kind of, um, it's kind of, you know, maybe a, a sort of a backlash effect because there was a lot of this hype early on. And I imagine some people bought into the hype and now things are not looking so rosy again. So, you know, they're being like kind of, it's, it's a kind of a harsh reintroduction of reality that they're facing. Yeah. Talking about bad takes, something happened with Stadia recently, didn't it? Yes, it did. So Stadia, for those who don't know, is a game streaming service from Google. I'm somewhat a fan of it. I started off as quite a big fan, but not so much right now. But I know you're not a fan of it at all, really. I'm I'm totally an anti-fan, yes. Yeah, okay. We're not here to debate that again, though. We did that in a, a previous episode. Instead, I wanted to bring up what one of Google's own developers said. And it was, oh, it was so bad. The, there's, there's a person out there called Alex Hutchinson. Now on their Twitter bio, it says they were originally the creative director at Stadia. Mm-hmm. 
but they were actually the creative director of a studio that Google basically bought. So they weren't creative director of Stadia. They were creative director of a game developer that Google just now happens to own. So that sort of thing, when you have a really bad take, generates some pretty amazing bad press for the likes of Stadia and Google. So would you like to introduce the listeners to the bad take? Sure, I can I can read the bad take. So, um, streamers worried about getting their content pulled because they used the music that they didn't pay for should be more worried about the fact that they are streaming games that didn't pay f- that they didn't pay for as well. It's all gone as soon as publishers decide to enforce it. The real truth is that streamers should be paying developers and publishers of games they stream. They should be buying a license like any real business and paying for the content that they use. Wow, we haven't got an accent for that. Nice. Yeah, I feel like this is such a bad take and so out of touch that it has to be read with an accent and with the (laughs) rolled R's. So, Alex Hutchinson of Stadia Games and Entertainment Montreal Studio. His basic, what he's basically saying is that if you stream a game, you should be paying the developer and publisher for the rights to do so. Yeah. That is just, that is an argument that has been done before it was done to death and pretty much everybody agreed it was a bad idea. Yeah, I think this issue was basically settled by game developers like prior to 2015. Yeah. On YouTube, when like let's let's plays were big, and basically, I think everybody just came to the conclusion that hey, this isn't actually harming us because it turns out that the people who watch let's plays already put like bought and played the game, or it's just free marketing for people uh, for people who haven't yet played the game, or those people were never gonna like buy the game to begin with. Yeah, and the thing is that playing a game is very different to the likes of music or a movie because movies and music don't change they are the same so somebody watching Mm -hmm. that say if the streamer decided to stream an entire movie that's that's different because you're you're not doing anything you're just you're putting the movie on or putting the music on whereas a game it's changed it's different by the person playing it and commenting yeah it's inherently it's inherently transformative exactly and it was the backlash on it was absolutely staggering. It was it was kind of like reading pure bliss from people. You just all the quoted tweets on it were absolutely amazing. So a lot of people did not agree with this, obviously. There is over a thousand quoted tweets on it. And it's such yeah. an easy argument to deconstruct as well. Because like you said, it was done to death back in many years ago. You have developers who put up basically blanket statements saying, feel free to stream our game, feel free to record it, because they understand it's free marketing. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, ridiculous I mean... thing is that if you're going to have in your Twitter bio that you work for Stadia, which, yes, okay, I'm somewhat a fan of it because of the convenience, but to have an opinion like that mm-hmm. on your Twitter account saying you work for Stadia. Now, I know it's... It is a very difficult thing to split apart the person from the job. 
but for a service that's already unpopular and already somewhat struggling to gain any real attention, that's not going to help. It just, it made Stadia just, oh, I'm lost for words on how stupid it is. Yeah, I mean, the the worst thing is, like, this directly attacks all of the people that do game streaming and, you know, YouTube Let's Plays and, you know, YouTube game coverage. So basically, they directly attacked basically the global PR movement of all things video gaming. So it's kind of like, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's just like a really, really stupid idea. Because basically, you know, these are people that are like really big influencers. So it doesn't take them very much to just literally just retweet these stupid takes. And then there is going to be a lot of eyeballs on this stupid crap. And most of the people that are seeing this are going to take the side of the streamers because, you know, they are fans of the streamers. So, I mean, there was just no way this was going to go well any, like, in, in any world. It's, it's funny, really, because when you look at some of the most popular and most played games right now, some of them are only there because of streamers. Yeah, exactly. Or YouTubers. I mean, there, yeah, I mean, there's, there's games like Among Us and, uh, and, uh, the, 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 the game that fell off the face of the earth, uh, Fall Guys. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, basically these ga- these games only became popular because there were people playing them on streams and on YouTube and then, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of eyeballs on your game means that there's a lot of potential buyers. Now, you could try and find that argument and say, but there's a lot of people out there streaming and doing videos that aren't generating that sort of thing for games. But that doesn't really matter because these people are still giving you a bit of free press and it doesn't cost game developers anything to give out copies to streamers and video content creators and they don't have to do it it takes only a couple minutes to check out their channel see if they have enough followers for you to think okay that might be worth it i mean help people you know these streamers it's worth like these kind of these tweets read like streamers are just taking the games and just using them for you know the content and whatnot but it's worth keeping in mind that many of these streamers you know either they got a copy of the game from the developers with the kind of you know uh implicit agreement that this game is going to be streamed or they bought the game so they have already you know bought the entry ticket to streaming that game even going past that there are streamers who are paid by publishers and developers to stream their game. Yeah, exactly. It is a very powerful medium to use for marketing, and it clearly works for a lot of games. Like Fall Guys, that started off on Steam. It was absolutely insane how many people played it, and a large reason for that was because some of the hugely influential streamers were taking a look at it. And they were doing it for like a solid week. And when you look at the Steam charts, the players online at any one time was hitting close to 200,000. I mean, it's dropped off dramatically now down to like 17, 14,000 and so. But the point is... Yeah, those are still copies that were moved. Yeah, exactly. There were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of it. And it's, yeah, 
it's a it's a really bad take. Streamers and video content creators should not have to pay a license to essentially help advertise these games and use it as content for themselves at the same time. It's it's it works together. It's not something that's against the game developers. And it was clearly such a bad take that Alex Hutchinson from Stadia Games and Entertainment Montreal Studio has not tweeted since. Yeah, and Google had to clarify that this was not the, not the stance of Google, Stadia, or YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he probably got a big slap on the wrist for that. Ouch. Yeah, and I, I honestly like I can't pass by the opportunity to just point out how ironic it is that a guy working for Stadia is, you know, warning people that corporations might take away your video games. <laughs> I mean, I just can't let, I, I can't pass by that zinger because it's, it's kind of hilarious. Oh, it is. Like, I'm, okay, I'm somewhat a fan of Stadia for the convenience of it. I like the fact that there are games now that I can play just by opening a tab in my browser on my Linux machine. And then five minutes later, I could be downstairs on my big TV playing that same game. The, the convenience of it is great, but. It is kind of hilarious that this person who works for them is basically saying, you should pay to stream these, you should pay to create videos on these. Otherwise, they're going to take your games away. And it's like, well, like your service will if it ever shuts down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, do you not understand what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's like hilarious in so many different ways. Oh, dear. Right. I think we've rinsed Alex Hutchinson of Stadia Games and Entertainment. Right enough. Yes. We have some questions from listeners. The first of which, uh, would the popularity of free and open source games make Linux more appealing to the gaming community? So the way I read this question is like, if there was a, uh, if there were like, um, let's, let's, let's focus on like a single example. Like if there was a, a, a free and open source game that was wildly popular in the gaming sphere in general, would that make Linux more appealing to the gaming community, like, uh, kind of on the side? Um, I would say yes. Uh, if there was a game that was free and open source that was, like, really popular, let's say, like, Among Us popular or something along those lines. And, um, you know, I, I think that it would be beneficial to the Linux community as, uh, as well, simply because, you know, if it's a free and open source title, it could then naturally run on Linux. And thus, people could people would be more free to choose their own operating system. They wouldn't be tied down. Yeah, I'll agree to that. I think if you had open source versions of titles like, well, not open source versions, but if you had games, you know, with the comparable popularity of All Guys, Among Us, and all the you know all the sudden hits, if you had things like that available as open source. And available on Linux, I think, yes, that would in a way help the popularity. Not directly though, because I don't think people are gonna suddenly switch, but it's the point of having that option there and options are important. Yeah. I mean, it would be more of an indirect thing, exactly like you said, where, you know, since they're not now tied down to Windows, they could now move to Linux. uh, And that would kind of move over the people who have this willingness like i would like to use linux but i can't because there's this software that i can't run on linux so it would help with that but obviously i don't think anybody is going to like 
install Linux because their favorite game is free and open source and it runs on Linux. Like there is a, a bit of like a, an in, initial kind of barrier that you need to cross over to like make the decision to switch to Linux. Yeah. And the thing is, it doesn't need to be free. It can be open source. You can allow people to go and get it, but you can still sell it. This is I mean, what a lot of people get confused about, though. The, I mean, the free in free and open source means free software. Let's let's like remember. Let's keep this in mind. Um, so this basically means uh, the free is a kind of a crappy word. Uh, I suppose libre would be a little bit better of a word, but it basically it means that it's it's freedom and open source software. Yeah. Now I'll give you an example. Uh, a game that I'm quite fond of called Mindustry. It is free. It's open source. It's available on itch.io. You can grab it on it's either GitHub or GitLab. And you can also buy it on Steam. And it's £4.79. pence. Now, it has overwhelmingly positive reviews from users. There are 5,440 reviews counted. Now, that is actually genuinely quite impressive. There's over 400 people playing it right now. So that is pretty successful. Mm -hmm. Moving on, there was another question from listeners. Would there be more innovation within the gaming industry if open source models were more common? So I guess in this case, like, um, a part, part of like the problem with this question comes down to like, what do we define as innovation? So do we consider, for example, modding to be innovation or do we mean like the development of new and, you know, brand new technologies, uh, and things like that? But I, I, I do believe that, uh, more open source models being used in gaming industry would mean more innovation because it would at least, if nothing else, it would allow us to kind of pick the best parts of different things and kind of, you know, try to combine them to create a better whole. Yeah, yeah, that's a good and, answer. And, and, and if, I mean, obviously, modding would be significantly easier. Like, we could, we could do so much more with modding to, you know, change games to do completely different things. And I, I believe that that would give tools to people uh, who are not necessarily as technically, at, like, uh, capable but who still have like good ideas for things. And I, th I think that would like kind of, um, it would lower the barrier of entry to making something of your own. That is why I think game engines have become so wildly popular because of all the tools that they give you that are there readily available. If you had that same with, well, in, in a lot of ways, you do have that same with open source. You've got things like SDL2, which can help you control audio input windowing and so many more things across windows mac linux nintendo switch stadia and so on but if you had a lot more of that then yeah i think there would be more innovation because people can like you said grab these things build upon them combine them and and do better and better mm. we had one last question which was would it be a good idea to make right wait hold on i've got my own question how do you pronounce this? Is it Godot engine or Godot engine or? Well, I, I, I personally say Godot because I feel like the, the literary reference is uh, worth keeping the pronunciation as Godot. 
Um, it, uh, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it might be a reference to Waiting for Godot, which is a, a, a kind of like, a, I don't, I don't remember exactly the, the art style, but it's kind of like surreal comedy-ish thing. It's, it's, um, it, it's a pretty fun play to read. I've actually, just, I prefer Godot. I've actually just actually bothered to look this up. And yeah, <laughs> and you're right. It's good, Godot. I have been saying yeah. it wrong in my head. For quite a long time now. Okay, good to know. Well, I, I've I've heard some people, like some developers, say Godot too. So I'm not entirely sure, but I I much prefer Godot. Okay. So the question was: Would it be a good idea to make Godot-based framework for creation of games from popular genres? So, as in, uh, they're asking: Would it be a good idea to have packs of first-person shooter pack? Is your platformer pack your fighting game pack? You're someone, a framework for the developers to take into Go.engine and then build their own game from. Would it be a good idea? Well, yeah, duh. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> I think the, 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 the only harm, the, the only potential harm is if these, like, these packs are, you know, uh, fully featured, it's entirely possible that this would kind of contribute to the same, like, selling, you know, baby's first FPS game on Steam or something. But I mean, at this point, that problem can't be avoided. So lowering the barrier to barrier uh, to entry in like making your own FPS game using Godot or making your own RPG game using Godot, things like that. I don't think that would be a harmful thing. I think it would actually be a really good thing, Ge- like genuinely good, because no matter what, you're going to have bargain bin, dumpster fire, trash put out by developers at some point anyway no matter what platform no matter what tools are available so i think it would be better if there were more open source projects out there that people can use with game engines like godot and otherwise so unity whatever that are open free open source and free for game developers to just take and use and that is what i think something like godot engine needs is a lot more of this built-up ecosystem of game projects, game examples, and so on, because that is one of the reasons why things like Unity and Unreal Engine are so massively popular, because they have these big stores of content that developers can use. Mm. So I think that would be good for it. Yeah, it would be good in a couple of ways. First of all, it would obviously, uh, it will lower the barrier of entry. So you can, you know, get people kind of onboarded quicker, uh, quicker, quicker, that in, uh, to using Godot from like a beginner level. And it would also probably help, you know, other like more uh, advanced developers kind of assess Godot a little bit quicker than if they have to like code everything by hand and set everything up by hand. Yeah. Okay. Now, I believe you've got a bit of a story to tell about a GPU. Yes, there was this mystery that I had with my RX 580 recently, and I decided that this would be a fun little thing to add kind of to the, um, to the end of the podcast here. So, um, sometime like f- for a while now, I've had, I had this issue, uh, where I would, uh, basically my system would freeze up while I was playing certain games. Most, uh, what, like the most recent example was Ziggurat 2. Um, and basically what would happen is, uh, after playing the game for a little while, um, my system, well, like both of my monitors would go black, my GPU fans would go crazy, 
the system would be like accessible through SSH, but uh, basically I couldn't like use any of the GUIs. You, I couldn't shut down any of the games, and basically, like all I had, like all I could do was uh, hard reset the system. So um, I thought that this was a, a many things. I I frantically debugged this issue. I tried to figure out if it's my CPU because I use a uh, I use a first gen Ryzen CPU, and it's one of the early ones that is a little bit more kind of um, finicky. So I have to uh, I have to kind of add a few command lines to my kernel, and I have to adjust the voltages in BIOS a little bit to make it more stable. Uh, I tried to figure out if it was that. Um, uh, and I, I, I ran like mem tests to figure out if my RAM was going bad. I tried to use different kernel versions. I basically tried to use main, different versions of Mesa. I did all of this thing going even as far as to basically kind of ripping my old system, my old i5-2500K system. And I built it into a cardboard box with a, uh, an old laptop hard drive that I pulled out from storage so that I could boot like the system. And I, I tried to figure out like, okay, is this the problem? I swapped out my GPU. Like I, I swapped out my older GPU into the system. Couldn't find, couldn't rep like reproduce the same crashes. So I built the system out in like an open air test bench. I put this, my, my RX 580 into that. I tried to, um, reproduce it there and I couldn't for a while. Eventually, I managed to run enough uh, superposition, Unigine superposition benchmarks, and it crashed. And at that point, I was like, okay, well, at this point, it has to be a driver bug, right? So um, I, I, I asked around my friends that I know run like RX 480s, because those are basically the same thing as an RX 580. And, um, and they couldn't reproduce it until one of them did. I got one of them to crash their GPU in the same exact same way that I did. And they started looking into it and I was like, okay, well now this means that it's a driver bug, which means that I'm gonna have to worry like worry about this until like the kernel gets patched or Mesa gets patched or, or something. And there were like other bug reports about this, but like no solutions. Until my friend decided to look up like what did the AMD website say about this? And they recommend like they he noticed that the clock rates on his GPU were fluctuating slightly before the the, the GPU crashed. And he not he kinda noticed that there were identical symptoms being detected on Windows and it indicated overheating. So he took his GPU like he basically ripped it up like open. He replaced the paste on it put it back together, problem solved for him. I was like, there is no way there are, there is an RX 480 and an RX 580, two different G, like GPU designs entirely. Mine has more fans. Neither was actually reporting any overheating. They were saying like, it runs at like, the, 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 the sensor said that it was running at like 60 Celsius. Um, but at that point I was like ripping my hair out and I was like, okay, well, I, I'm going to go for this like Hail Mary. I'm going to, I'm going to take my GPU apart. Um, it was a little bit of a, you know, messing with stuff to actually figure out how to, you know, actually take apart the GPU because I have never replaced a paste on a GPU before, but I eventually managed to do that. I put the GPU back in, back together, put it into my system, ran the benchmarks, no crashes. What? Yeah, no crashes. So apparently, thermal paste fixes GPUs, 
So what you're saying is, let me get this straight. You sometimes laugh at me for certain NVIDIA problems that happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. But you're telling me now that if you buy AMD GPU, at some point you might need to rip it apart and redo thermal paste. Well, I mean, we're talking about, like, like at this point, multiple year old GPUs. I think I've had this one for three years, and uh, That's my not friend a long had... time. Well, it is not a long time. That is, that is true. But, um, I don't know what, I don't know what, like, how prevalent this issue is. I don't know what the actual issue was. All I know is after I replaced the thermal paste on the GPU, put it back into the system, and I, basically stress tested it with running superposition at like 4k resolution and 8k resolution it no longer crashes so my kind of theory and i don't know if this is at all correct is that there might be some part of the gpu that heats up more than the sensor you know kind of lets us know or maybe the sensor is reading incorrectly or something but um yeah, I don't know. Uh, after that, basically what I did was I decided to play it safe. I've adjusted my fan curves for my GPU now, so it's a little bit more aggressive. And I also kind of messed with undervolting the GPU a little bit. So I managed to rip, like, I think uh, 100 millivolts of the, um, like, highest um, uh, highest kind of voltage on the, the highest power la- power state. And, uh, I mean, I've saved some power that way, and I've, you know, the, the GPU temperatures are now down. I'm trying to keep them kind of under 60 right now, because I'm not entirely sure what the hell is happening after they go, like, above 60. And kind of, like, part of me is still not sure if I've solved this problem, but I, I guess my, kind of, the, the, the reason I wanted to tell this story is because it's so weird... It's kind of like an almost like a ghost story in the sense that nothing makes really much sense. But I guess if you have an RX 580 that is crashing in like GPU intensive games and the particularly the symptoms are that your monitor goes black, uh, potentially the fan, uh, the fans on the GPU start like going like full tilt basically, then maybe it's time for you to clean your GPU and replace your thermal paste. I mean, don't do it if your your GPU is under warranty. But like, if it's not, then then and you 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 trust yourself enough, maybe it's time for a repaste. It's a kind of a weird story, but I figured it would it would it was fun enough to kind of tell that one. <laughs> but the <laughs> thing is, though, it it does kind of make sense because people do the same for their CPUs. They replace their thermal paste, so it's like, well, why would that not be a thing with a GPU as well? They get really friggin' hot. Yeah, I mean, I've done. I, I also replaced the paste on my laptop not not that long ago because that was also starting to overheat, and I couldn't like clean it up anymore. Yeah. So the the thermal paste of your components, like your laptops, your GPUs, and your CPUs, they eventually go bad, and you need to redo them. So yeah, I guess that's something that you should consider if your stuff is starting to run too hot or you're getting like mystery crashes you can't explain through any other means. It also, like, the, the interesting thing here is that kind of supports my theory that this is actually overheating, is remember when I said that it didn't crash on the open-air test bench until a little bit later than usual? Right, yeah. Yeah, because it's running on on an open-air test bench. Obviously, <laughs> that's going to run colder than the closed <laughs> chassis. Well, yeah. But yeah, it, it was weird. But I'm I'm just glad that I managed to figure that out, because I've been playing a lot of Ziggurat lately. Yeah, okay. So... 
that is the last point of our usual podcast is what games have we actually been playing? So you just mentioned Ziggurat 2. Yes. I have uh let me let me quickly check how many hours I have in this. Uh eight hours. Eight hours. That's not bad. Yeah. And Ziggurat 2 only released recently actually, didn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's currently on early access. It's a uh, it's a sequel to the Ziggurat uh, roguelite FPS thing. Uh, Ziggurat Two kind of changes the formula a little bit, but I think in a good way. So it definitely looks a lot better than the original game. Uh, and uh, instead of like having the whole game be like your entire like throughout your entire run, you go through the entirety of the game. Uh, now they're split like they've kind of split it up into multiple like smaller dungeons, and there's a lot more kind of like. Uh, uh, kind of uh, permanent progression that is happening between these individual dungeons. So I, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, see that's the thing I've been playing a bit of that one as well. I just like the fact that you're running around in first person through dungeons with either like a wand or a big staff and you're shooting spells at all these creatures in various different rooms and it's just, it's seriously cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it is currently missing in some variety that I'm kind of uh, hoping that they add eventually. The bosses in particular seem kind of samey, but uh, I feel like the, 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 the kind of like base game and the base gameplay mechanics are really solid. And for an early access game, it was surprisingly polished. Yeah, it, it definitely has a good look to it and a pretty good overall feel. I do agree with you with Ziggurat 2's bosses, though. They do feel a bit sort of Samey. Yeah, they're, I feel like they're kind of like placeholder things for now. I, I certainly hope, at least. And uh, another game that I have been playing is Metro 2033 Redux. Um, for, for a while, I had a problem with that game where it would use up all of my RAM, and it would basically just um, cause the, the system to misbehave because it was like trying to allocate more RAM that I had available. But it seems like that got fixed somewhere along the way, so not by the Metro developers. I think this was a GPU driver-related bug or something. But I've been playing that now, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty fun experience. Yeah, it's not, it's not a new game, Metro 2033. It's been out for quite some time now, hasn't it? Yeah, this is definitely not a new port. It's, it's, uh, it's a fairly old one at this point. But the Metro games are pretty damn good, though. Yeah, and the books are good, too. Whereas I've been doing quite the opposite of you. See, you've been running around shooting things, either as a wizard or a really cold Russian. Mm -hmm. I have been playing Super Liminal. It's a new, well, it's new for Linux and Steam overall because it was originally Epic exclusive, but it's released on Steam now. It's a a first-person puzzler that relies on your perspective. So you pick up an object, and the way you hold it against something else changes the perspective, and that changes the size of the actual object. Now, it's, mm. a, it's not particularly difficult, but it's such a fun idea for a puzzle game. And they've the way they've done the mechanics of it are, are quite brilliant, actually, because you're not just picking up objects, looking around a room to resize it, and then dropping it and moving it around somewhere. You're also matching up like parts of rooms as if the perspective you walk around a room and you see like a line drawn along a wall and you think well, why is that there and you look around and you see other things that match up to that line 
So you match up everything in your camera and then pop, it turns into an object. And it's, it's so, yeah, it's, it's super clever and it's, it's really enjoyable. It's a super liminal. It's, it's great. Yeah, I've, I've seen some like gameplay footage of it and I definitely think that I need to look into it at some point, but I haven't yet picked it up. I would definitely recommend it to anybody listening. Super liminal. Yeah, really good. And we've also had recently within the last, I think, two months, quite a number of really nice releases, like official Linux releases, that is, apart from, so Ziggurat 2, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, Super Liminal, which I just had a chat about there. We've also just today, in fact, the day of recording, Thursday, the 12th of November, Streets of Rage 4 got its official Linux release. What? A retro classic brought into the modern area, and now it's on mm. Linux. Another interesting point about that one, though, is Streets of Rage 4 was ported by Ethan Lee, creator of FNA, who also ported Superliminal. Mm. So there was also Crystal Caves, an absolute classic platformer. That got HD remaster, which was released this year, and just recently the developers made a proper Linux version as well. Nice. Well, that's nice. Yeah, definitely nice. There was a crowdfunded game that went on Fig called What the Golf. And it's basically a <laughs> They joke that it's a game about golf made by people who don't understand anything about golf. So it's, it's what the golf is going on. We had another beat em up released lately called Nine Monkeys of Shaolin. And that was actually really good. I played that one. I, I enjoyed the combat in that quite a lot, actually. And there was a challenging slaughterhouse of Disc Room. And that was a very unexpected release for me. I had no idea that was even going to be a thing. But Disc Room, as the name might suggest, you run around different rooms and there's lots of spinning discs that you have to duck, dive, dodge, and hopefully not get torn in half. And it's it's actually really, really cool. It's difficult, though, but it gives you like these little abilities as you get through it. Like you might be able to slow down time or quickly speed past something. But at some point, a disc is going to cut you in half. But it's, it's a lot of fun. And there has been many, many more Linux releases over the last couple of months. There's, yeah, it's been, been a good few months, I think. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kind of missed out on many of these new releases. I need to kind of catch up. I'm, I'm, these days I'm kind of super bad at keeping up with the, all of the new games that are coming out. So I feel like I, all of the time I like hear about a new Linux game and somebody's like, for example, when I'm streaming, somebody asks me like, what do you think about game X? And I'm like, uh, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's usually me, the one. Have you heard about this one? Have you heard about that one? Have you heard about that one? Yeah, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of glad that I'm not in the business of like actually keeping track of all of these new things because I would be doing such a bad job. It is so it's a good thing that we have you to kind of look up all of the new releases and post about them, it's so just... the dummies like myself can kind of figure out what is actually happening. <laughs> it is tiring though, I'll admit, because the problem with writing about games all the time is that. When it comes to your own time, a lot of the time you're just like, you don't want to play a game. And it's, mm. it's become quite a problem for me actually thinking about it because it's not, it's not burnout because I'm still 
very much passionate about Linux and Linux gaming and all these great games that developers keep putting on the platform. But it's like I spend sometimes a 10 hour day going emailing developers, testing games, doing videos, announcing new games or whatever. And then it's like I'm wiped out, which is why I really appreciate the weekends. I can blast through some games like Superliminal because it's just great. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember when I was still like actively like contributing articles and stuff. And I was like, for a while, I was doing that thing where I basically uh, I covered a game every week. And I don't know how I pu- how I pulled it off back then because holy hell that that was like and and that that's like I was just covering a single game every week Al- although it did mean that I would write like a first impressions piece on it and I would make a video about it and all of that stuff so it it, it did take a while but that like thinking back like I couldn't pull that off anymore like I would burn out so fast on doing that yeah running a website. Writing about games constantly, it is, people probably don't even realize how mentally taxing it is, especially because unless you're working for somebody really big, you're generally doing 99% of what you do alone. And it's, Mm. yeah, it's, it's hard, but I still love what I do. Yeah. And we love what you do. Oh, okay. I think we can leave it there. We've gone over an hour now. We have had a chat about DMCA's Ritana Steam Play, a very bad take from a Stadia developer. Questions from listeners, a mystery of the crashing RX 580, and some really cool games. If you have any topics, big or small, uh, we definitely like to, uh, we would like to talk about them. Absolutely, yeah. So if you have questions, if you have things you want answered, if you have a particular topic that you think we would be good at ranting about. Just let us know. Anytime, anywhere. Yep. Okay. That was the Linux Gaming Co-op News Punch. Officially episode 24. We will see you again in a couple weeks for the next episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.